Logocentrifugal podcast. I'm Chance Lunsford. I'm also Logocentrifugal. You might also be Logocentrifugal. While you're puzzling that out, let me introduce today's special guest. I have with me the great, the powerful, the man behind the curtain, Mr. Jonathan Pritchard. Uh, Jonathan Pritchard is a dude who I ran into on Twitter. Um, and he may or may not have more than one permutation on there. And what I found fascinating about him is that he has a very level head, but he's also into um, a lot of different aspects of life that I find interesting. And they don't always line up with what you might assume a level-headed, logical person um, might align themselves with. Um, and I'm sure he'll get into that here in just a minute. But the reason that I wanted to have him on the podcast is because um, there's a lot going on in the world and especially in your mental world that you might not have an understanding of the processes and the ways that you can use those tools inside your mind to help further your own um, ability to make the life that you want to live. And this is something that Jonathan has uh, as much experience working in that realm as anybody out there, to be frank. And that's why I wanted to sort of pick his brain. And, and uh, I guess with that very sparse introduction, Thank you very much for coming. Welcome to the Logos and Trivical podcast, and maybe you can fill in some of the gaps there about who you are and what you do. Hey, man. Thank you so much for having me on here. And with an introduction like that, it's like, man, I want to meet that guy. That guy sounds badass. Like, he's awesome. So I'll, I'll try to live up to it. So uh, long story short, for about a decade, I traveled the world as a mentalist which is essentially a magician that niched down to mind reading tricks. And that single interest has been the passion of my life since I was five years old. It's been essentially the thing that I've dedicated my life to doing. And in that context, I've been able to ferret out not only how this trick works specifically, but why magic tricks and mind reading tricks are possible in the first place, because that helps you unlock the fundamental processes that are going on in the human mind of how we interact with reality. And once you unlock that, it's just like seeing into the matrix, man. It's like getting administrator access to the human operating system. So instead of most people's uh, user level access, like I can use this program, it's more like understanding how a computer works so that you can create whatever program you want to do exactly what it is that you need it to do instead of being constrained by what other people have created for you to use. So that's kind of the long story short, and, and there's a, a lot of other stuff that that we can dig into that's the hub that holds it all together yeah you know listener to this podcast or uh people who know me at all on the internet know that this is something that's um very dear to my life and and i've used a lot of a lot of mental tools and and these underlying processes to help shape my own life and to help people begin to see that they can shape their own. You know, I have my book on common mentality and that's a lot of what is in there is 
I always tell people, look, you feel the way you feel about an event because of these processes and you don't have to necessarily feel that way. If you have a traumatic event, what's the difference between that and another event that's similar to that, that you don't have that hang up on. It's just the way that you've envisioned it and attached things to it. And if you can short circuit that, then you can release all that stuff and you can view it in a way that will help you move forward. Um, and I wonder though, this is something that, you know, this is, there's, there's a dividing line right there that is important to make note of. And I'll, and I want to get your thoughts on it, which is that you, you can alter the way that you view or feel about an event, but you can also alter the truth of the event in your own mind. And then you can build up a deception rather than, uh, you know, like a, a reframing. And I wonder how you navigate that sort of edge to make sure you're being appropriately or, you know, doing it appropriately. To that point there, there's, man, that's, that's a lot going on there. Uh, first is, okay. So there, there are essentially four types of truth. And if you confuse one for the other, you're going to get into a lot of trouble. And what that is, is the individual experiential truth. There's the external truth that you could measure of the individual. Then that individual is a part of a group. And there's the group dynamic external and the group dynamic internal. So the internal truth is the experiential momentary biased, well, this is my truth kind of a thing, <laughs> right? Where, where meaning lives, right? There's the external, which is the measurable, which is the reductionist approach to life of, well, life is just atoms. And the only thing that matters is base layer reality. And that individual is itself a conglomeration of those more fundamental parts. And those parts are themselves a conglomeration of more fundamental parts. And it's, it's individual and group all the way down until you get to fundamental quarks and, and just space time. So every layer up from the most fundamental layer of reality is itself a group and an individual that is now a part of a larger group of higher levels of organization. And organization is the capacity for experience. So the human being is a really well-ordered system of individual parts that is itself an individual and a, a group together, right? So on one half, is the external, here's what's measurable. And then on the other half is the experience of it. And that's where meaning lives. So when people get into the purely reductionist, well, it's just physics, it's just measurable. Reality is the only thing that matters. Well, they're ignoring a complete half of the universe, which is the experience of it, the meaning of it. And to me, that's what metaphysics is is the meaning dimension of reality. So if you go purely physics, then you're missing out on the meaning. 
if you go purely with, well, this is my truth, you're ignoring the cause and effect nature of reality. So to me, it's not a contradiction to understand the power that meaning has to transform your life in order to direct cause and effect actions in base layer reality. Because most of your problems are imaginary anyway. You're envisioning these ways of being, these ways of thinking, and you're creating the problems that you're experiencing. And if you understand that process, you can dream up better problems. So I, I, I see all the time people who go the pure reductionist route of it's just cause and effect. Only logic is what is real in the world. Well, you're trying to use logic to apply to a problem that is fundamentally illogical. It, most of your problems just don't make sense. So you're trying to use logic on a thing that is fundamentally illogical. Well, then that doesn't make sense that that's the way you're trying to solve it. You dreamt up these problems so you can dream up their solutions using imagination and creativity that make no damn sense, yet they're highly effective. So to me, the difference is... You've got fantasy on one side, which is dreaming up a reality that is fundamentally impossible of of being due to the fundamental principles of reality. Or you could have imagination, which is the ability to dream up things that aren't real yet, but are possible. And when you understand the difference between imagination and fantasy, You can start putting your imagination to use to create a life that is beyond your current level of understanding, but you could at least imagine it. And I've seen that all the time when I I do my mind reading show. It's basically like a 70-minute off-Broadway level mind reading show. I work with BP, State Farm, like Fortune 500 companies book me to come in and and just warp people's minds. And then... (laughs) I I worked colleges for about 10 years and college students would come up to me and go, man, I can't even imagine doing what you do for a living. And they mean it in a couple ways. One, they can't imagine how this mind reading stuff is possible, right? That's kind of the first layer. The second layer is, holy cow, this guy isn't working the nine to five grind. And I can't even imagine how that way of living is possible because the only way that I've ever heard that it's possible to feed myself is to go work at a company that doesn't value me, trade my time for dollars, get a wife, have a a white picket fence, and then die with a gold watch from the company, right? So that narrative just doesn't exist anymore. And then I come blazing through like a comet as that one black swan event of saying, look, there's something else possible, but they're so locked into their way of seeing how the world works that they literally can't imagine a different way of living. And if you can't imagine anything different, 
how in the world are you expecting to make something different? Mm. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I often think of uh, those two realms as, and, and don't get me wrong, and, and it sounds like you're in this uh, situation too, where I really respect and uh, use the fundamental rules and nature of reality as the foundation. Because if you don't, then, you know, what are you building from? But mm -hmm. those, those rules and those, and those building blocks, it's like a container, you know, you, they create a frame, but it's like, what are you going to put in your container? What are you going to paint on the canvas that it's framing? And that's where the imagination side comes in. And when people say, I can't even imagine, it, it really is so telling. And they use that just as sort of a, a casual or, or glib statement. You know, I can't even imagine doing that. But the reality is those words come out of their mouth because they have not yet been able or been led to imagine a world outside of the, you know, the box that they've framed for themselves. And a lot of people confuse the cultural box with the fundamental reality box and they superimpose the two on each other. And then just any conflicts between those two things, they just kind of, I, I, I don't know, man, you know, I'm just, I'm just doing what I've been told. And for me, I, you know, I've always been a contrarian and I was always sharp enough as a kid to say, well, you know, just because you told me that doesn't mean that it's true. It just means that you said it. And even now with my, you know, I have a very concrete belief system and it's built on principles and my observations and also the way that I would like things to be that I imagine can be possible. But I, I always take that with a, with a grain of salt and a sense of humor because it's like, well, I, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm just a smart monkey. So, so my ability to understand the all encompassing infinity and to really, you know, I, I can't say for sure that my beliefs are real, but they've worked well for me. And I've seen things that lead me to believe that. And I just, I guess I wonder, there's, there seems, it seems to be the case, the thing that you were talking about, the nine to five and the white picket fence situation. That's a, that's a pretty strong cultural program that's, that's been put forth for many decades now. And like you said, people have a hard time even imagining something outside of that. And even people like you, um, or, you know, these like, let's, let's call them celebrities or influential personalities. There's always this, uh, sort of fundamental division between, well, I'm me and we're these people. And then there's the special ones and we go, Ooh, ah, look at the special ones, but I could never be one of those. And I, and I wonder from your perspective, sort of being an outlier, what do you think, um, what do you think is the difference between those who class themselves into the nine to five group and can't see anything outside of it? And those who kind of pop out of that and, and begin to pursue another angle or another trajectory? For me, one of the, the clearest indicators of which division you self-sort into is gumption. Hmm. Having the audacity and daring to imagine something different. And it's, it's a fundamentally different approach to life. How dare you have the, the gall to leave this behind of forgetting your family up, right? All of those things that are leveraged to maintain your trajectory and then the absolute daring to change your course requires 
giving up everything, everything. And that is a terrifying, painful, all-consuming decision to burn up everything that's familiar in order to create exactly what you want out of life. And that is not easy. It is, it is terrifying. And I don't begrudge the, the people who prefer to follow the common social narrative, like at all, like it is, it's deeply meaningful when you can have a a non-conscious shared context with almost every single person you ever meet, right? We're all playing by the same rules. We're all on the same page. We all get it. You're like me. Okay, cool. We get it. Well, then it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to step off that path and to step away from that kind of shared community understanding of the rules of engagement where you just kind of go, all right, I'm going rogue, man. I'm, I'm doing my own thing. Well, then you start interacting with some other wacky characters and some other people that have just, they, they decided, all right, I'm going to live like a maverick. I'm going to make up my own rules and live my own life. And those are pretty much the only people you could hang with anymore because they've stepped outside the asylum. <laughs> just kind of like, all right, yep, you're, yeah, cool. We're totally different in our own approaches because it is a conscious fabrication of your own existence. And therefore, it's, it's unique and different in its own unique and different way. So that often is the only similarity that you'll have with another maverick, which makes it difficult to have that shared sense of meaning and purpose. But man, it's really cool results, right? It's, it's, it's really, really fun. Um, in my work and, and life, I've been able to work with some like celebrities and ooh, names you'd recognize, right? So it's like uh, somebody whose name rhymes with Chris Angel. I was uh, <laughs> picked to, uh, to, to help. I, I was a consultant on a national TV project that, that he was working with. So I got flown out to Vegas and put up in, uh, in the Luxor and in a really nice room, all that kind of fun stuff. Uh, in the morning, the Escalade would come pick me up and we'd drive off into the desert. And it was me and a, a team of really cool thinkers for like a, a week and a half. We were just thinking, right? Like I was, it was my job to think in a way that most normal people don't. That was literally my job. And at the time, uh, it, it was it was really interesting to see the machine that he had created, that he had dreamt up this phenomenal machine that was just churning out money, right? It was like Tuesday afternoon at 4 p.m., there's 1,400 people that bought tickets to go see his show on a Tuesday afternoon. It, to me, that's insane. Right? It's a 1,500-seat theater, and it's essentially sold out. 
on a Tuesday afternoon. Like that's impossible. Hmm. And there he was. That's he was doing two shows a night, six nights a week. His contract is two shows a night, six nights a week for 10 years. 10 years. Now, in the traditional sense, you would think, oh my goodness, this is phenomenal success. He's rich beyond the wildest imaginations. He's got adoring fans. He's got job security, right? It's like 10-year contract. That's phenomenal. With Cirque du Soleil, that's that's the best in the world. Like That's the pinnacle of achievement. And he was miserable because there's no escaping it. He built a prison where he's the hamster on the wheel. And if he slows down for a millisecond, it all comes crashing down. So Hmm. I saw a way of getting success by most traditional standards. He's wildly successful. And I saw firsthand, I never want to be successful that way. So that's a really weird thing to wake up to, that there are ways to be successful that aren't good, right? By yeah. all measurements, they're, they're the best you could ever do and realizing that that's hell. So oftentimes, if failure doesn't destroy you as a person, well, then the universe tries success. And it will give you exactly what it is that you've always wanted and then asks you, can you handle it? How are you going to endure this? It's perfect. It's exactly what you asked for. It's, it's just like the genie going, all right, okay, you wished for this thing. Perfect. Here you go. And then you realize it's a waking nightmare. This isn't at all what I thought it would be like. I want out. Nope. You asked for it. Right. So be really, really careful what you ask for because you'll end up getting it. So when you are putting your mind to what kind of life do I want to create, man, you 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 don't realize what power you're dealing with until it starts happening. And then you've got to learn to manage success. So that's why I I love not being an overnight success, right? I never want to to catapult to national awareness. Like I have successfully avoided notoriety, right? <laughs> but every, every year, my problems get more and more interesting. That's totally cool with me. My goal has never been to be rich and famous, right? Because it's like, if you want to be famous, go kill somebody, right? Like that'll get you famous. But again, your definition of outcome will not necessarily dictate your strategy for getting there. So not only do you have to worry about what you define as success, you then have to figure out the best way to do it that frees up your time and energy to connect with high-quality people instead of just becoming a slave to your desires and going, well, I'm going to work 50 hours a week. I'm going to work 60 hours a week and hustle and grind so that I could have this outcome, realizing that, well, it killed you to have that outcome at the expense of everything you thought that outcome would provide for you. 
It, it's yeah. it's super wacky. You know, it's uh, it's just as hard to carry lead as it is to carry gold. And what you're just talking about, that sort of outcome-oriented uh, life experience, is is pretty tricky. It, it it'll build a prison every time because you know you. I, I like to work a lot. I like to put in long hours. I like to, if I have something, I know I get obsessive over a project. And the reason I get obsessive over projects is because it's interesting to me and I want to do it and learn it and make it. But it's not yeah. like, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't do this podcast because um, I want to be a podcaster. I do it because I get to connect with interesting people and learn. And then I get to offer those lessons that I get to learn and, and satisfy my curiosity and then give it to other people and say, Hey, here's an opportunity for you to take something that might help you to better be able to envision your, your life and then to go out and build it. And that to me, there's, there's the ability to imagine the future. And then there's the gumption to go out and make that future reality. And then there's when the train starts rolling, you don't forget that, the stops along the way are, are not the final stop. You know, you, you can't stop envisioning the future. You can't stop going for the, you know, the dream because as soon as you stop, you start moving backwards. It's just sort of, you know, the universe isn't stagnant. Evolution isn't stagnant. The universe is literally, you know, moving all the time. And if you stop, if you stop dreaming, if you stop imagining, if you stop working towards that next thing, then your experience stops moving forward. It stops evolving and you just mm -hmm. kind of fall away and you get tired of whatever it is you're doing. I like to compare this um, experience to like a fart in a room. You know, somebody farts in a room and at first you're like, oh, that's gross. And then a minute later you acclimate to it and it might still be on your mind, but you're not smelling it. You're just doing whatever you're doing. Like, well, you know, stinky Bob farted. And I guess that it is what it is. I'm going to go back to my whatever it is I'm doing. And there was one more point that I um, wanted to bring up. You know, you talked about you have the you have the let's play by the standard rules, and then you have the I'm going to write my own rules. But there's one more category in there, and um, sometimes this category is an intermediary between those two, which is there's the rules, and now rules be damned. I'm not going to play by any rules. I'm just going to act on impulse and whim. And that probably is the most mm -hmm. destructive path you could walk down because when you don't have any rules framing what you're supposed to do, then uh, it tends to be the case that self-destruction ends up being the rule. And I wonder yes. if someone were to want to go Absolutely. their own route, what would you maybe, you know, like what are some of the ways you could help them understand how to write their own rules rather than just forsaking rules in general? Right. It, to me, it's it's kind of one of those things of different is rarely better. Better is almost always different. I use a fork to eat, just like everybody else, right? It's like what I I'm really good with chopsticks. When I go to a, a Chinese restaurant, I can eat with chopsticks. So it, it's not like well, I'm going to be different and eat soup with my hands because I'm, I'm different. I'm wacky. I'm my own man, right? So being different just to be different is about the most useless thing you can do with your time. So you're still, if all you do is be contrarian to what is, 
you're still being controlled by what you think you're destroying because you're letting it set the pace. You're letting it set the dimensions. You're letting what is dictate what you do because you think multiplying by negative one is the easiest thing in the world, right? Like to me, that's, that's going rogue is just whatever they're doing, I'm going to do the opposite. So you're still letting the, the normal dictate your abnormal. So you're, you're just a puppet to everything still. The difference is what are you going to create? What are you going to spend your time and energy on to make that didn't exist before? So your life is an act of creation and positive energy development instead of just a reactionary approach, right? So from the world of design, my degree is in studio art. I have a degree in painting. When you are working for a client in a design capacity, the worst thing you could possibly hear is your client say, you know what, whatever you like, that's fine. I, I'll, I'll just know it. I'll, I'll know it when I see it. That's the worst thing possible because they've given you zero constraints of what they're looking to create. And when you could do anything, then nothing will be good enough because there's no criteria for evaluating whether it meets the mark or doesn't. So you need constraints and the more constraints you have, the more creativity will happen because you find more and more novel ways, innovative ways of fulfilling all of the the requirements of the design brief in surprising ways that you would have never dreamt up if you didn't have these pressures trying to control the dynamic. So that's why uh, Jocko Willenick being like discipline equals freedom. It's like constraints equal creativity. So if you're trying to create something, you have to be absolutely clear of what is and is not acceptable. And you have to set those boundaries for yourself. So that's why to me, the, the hedonistic, you know what? Anything goes, man. It's life, baby. Just, just do what you want. Do what feels good. That is the fastest way to destroy your life. Just straight up, it'll, it'll diffuse your ability to create something worth living. You know, uh, I'm very much a paradigmatic thinker. There's a level and then there's a, there's like a field of play and then you, and then you reach the pinnacle of that level. And then there's, there's a little bit of chaos as you're shedding some of the rules that you were playing by. Cause you realize there's a, there's a world up here and there's, I like to think of it as there's only three, there's only three walls. You've got the ground and you've got the frame, you got the fencing in, but there's no ceiling. There's, there's just like a, there's like a, a pressure that you have to burst. There's like a bubble, but then it's, it's another bubble. But if you, if you take away the framing, then you can easily just fall all the way back down to the bottom. And if you, and if you forget about the rules that you've built upon to rise up, then you can just dump right down and, and falling carries momentum. I mean, in a very real sense it does, but in a metaphorical sense it does too. If you, for example, have um, a drug habit that you want to leave behind, 
let's say that you did cocaine for five years or something and you say, I'm not going to do cocaine anymore and I'm going to fill my life with this other stuff. There was a vacuum because I'm not doing it. I filled it with these things because the rule is that that has subtracted from my life. I don't want to do it. If you break that rule, then all the other rules that you've established for yourself suddenly become weaker because you've you've broken part of that foundation you might not just fall to one level you might go boop 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 you might not hit all the way down to rock bottom or you might but that momentum is significant and the thing that people i think tend to forget is that the the rules that you live your life by yeah they should be yours you shouldn't just let people determine your rules for you but at the same time you have to have the rules where there's no way for you, like you said, to measure your success, to express your creativity within a certain frame so that you can make something like, there's this movie called Igby Goes Down. And it was, a, it was an influential movie on me because it's about this kid who's a knucklehead and a smart ass and um, very sharp, but doesn't want to play by the rules. And then he finally kind of understands it a little bit better, but he's talking with this guy named Russell. And he says, so Russell, you're an artist and pushes this exercise ball at him. And Russell says, I am an artist, and pushes the ball back. Well, what kind of artist are you? Pushes the ball. An artist creates art regardless of the form it takes. Pushes the ball back. So you're a painter then? you know? And it's like, well, okay, if you're an artist, you have to create art. That's how you measure whether or not you're an artist. And what kind of art do you create? Is it you know, living art? Is it a painting? Is it a drawing? Is it a sculpture? There are rules that define those things. You know, If you're a sculptor, if you're a stone sculptor, you have to have stone and you have to sculpt and those are kind of the only rules you have to play by but those are the rules that you have to play by in order to be a stone sculptor and then you can make whatever you want and if you're good at it and you can weave a narrative around the thing that you're making that's compelling then people will want to see your art and buy your art and you will be a success as a stone sculptor but if you say i'm a stone sculptor um, and then you don't touch stone and you don't sculpt it, then you're not a stone sculptor. You just said that. And that's, I think that's an important point that whatever it is that you envision your life to be, you actually have to start doing that thing. You don't get better at anything that you don't practice. And I'm sure that in your experiences on stage and sort of reading people's minds and using the cues and leading them to give you information and things that they might not otherwise give you and that they don't even realize that they're giving you, that you pull a lot of stuff out of people, a lot of these dreams and a lot of these motivations and ambitions that maybe they haven't really honed in on before. And when you do that, I'm very curious, um, number one, maybe some of the ways that you do do that. And then number two, sort of the emotional response that people have to the realization that these things they've held inside of them you know, brought to light and they look at it and realize they haven't been doing it and how that impacts them. The, the frame for doing a mind reading show, um, the, the secret to every magic trick you've ever seen in your life. Here's, here's what's really going on. The magician creates a context for the audience to make logical assumptions assumptions that are later shown to not be true. That's mm -hmm. it, right? That's the, that's the whole recipe. So the agent of action through their words and deeds and context, create a situation where it makes sense to believe this about reality. 
that belief is so strong that when it's shown to not be true, you have a magical look. So you get really good at understanding how people frame their experience and then influencing their non-conscious mental processes that dictate what they believe about what's actually going on. And then you, you learn how to reveal that your belief is out of alignment with reality and ta-da, magic, right? So it's, it's really interesting to see that happen thousand people and know that you are the architect and executor of this idea of an experience that only lives in the minds of your audience. Mm -hmm. The power that I have as a mentalist can't be measured because it doesn't exist in base layer reality. It's solely in the abstract metaphysical sense of experience. But I That's, get paid for it. Yeah. Right? It's it's what I get paid to do with people through experiences. So then what makes it really powerful and what makes it to where I get paid really good money is to lead people through those experiences that result in them recognizing limits of their understanding and recognizing that they're capable of doing more than what they thought they're capable of doing. Now, a lot of that is a vendetta, an artist uses lies to tell the truth kind of a thing. I use my skills to make them believe that they're responsible for this thing happening when it's really me making it happen by way of, uh, by proxy, of their involvement with the dynamic. For I, uh, one of my one of my favorite demonstrations. It sounds, not, but it gets me a standing ovation, which is where I have somebody mix up a Rubik's cube, then put it behind their back, and turn it. I tell a story, tell them, okay, hold it up, and the Rubik's cube is solved. Right, Just two minutes before, the person said, there's absolutely no way that I could solve this Rubik's Cube. I have them go through a process that they don't understand and that they believe will never work in a million years, yet the outcome proves that that belief is wrong because it just happened. Right. <laughs> so then they go, I don't know how I just did that, but I did just do that. What else do I believe about my limits as a human being that are holding me back from doing amazing, impossible things like that? So it's it's neat. <laughs> it, it is neat. It is cool. And, you know, I, I had to learn to do that in my own life. I had to learn to create these mental experiences for myself that allowed me to move past the way that I viewed certain, let's call them suboptimal events in my life, whether they came to me or, or I invited them in or whatever, I still had to be the one to take responsibility for dealing with them. And I wasn't able to do that in my current frame. There was a lot of triggers and trauma and stuff that I had to clear out of the way. And, and I had to figure out how to do that. And I had some help along the way, 
But then I also developed these tools by putting these different pieces together, sort of like a Rubik's cube, a personal Rubik's cube that I was like, okay, well now look, all the colors line up and I can show you. And, and now I'm going to go out and build this life that I, I know I can build. And I'm going to show you that this stuff works. And the power in realizing that in yourself, it carries with it a responsibility too, because then you see that I was this way and I learned these things and now I'm that way. And it would behoove me and it would behoove the world to transfer those skills and that understanding to other people because all the problems that maybe came my way that weren't by invitation, that's because those people were mixed up and their, you know, their colors were scattered. And if I can help other people line up, then it will take, you know, it might just take one twist in a life rather than, you know, sorting through the very complex problems that are presented. It's like, well, you're just a little bit out of alignment, dude. We'll just, you know, okay, now you're good to go. And when people understand that, like, you, you know, you give people a visceral, visual, experience that they can connect to emotionally and then they go oh wow and then they go out and they really want to make something of it and i guess i wonder not everybody goes to see a benevolent mentalist and not all mentalists are benevolent either and one of the things i always tell people is that you know narrative is everywhere there you're being told a story and there's a reason behind that story and usually if it's say in the news or or in a, presented to you by in a way that's designed to manipulate your beliefs, it's probably not to your advantage to be manipulated in the way that they're trying to send you. And so I guess I wonder, number one, um, maybe what are some of the things that you use in your personal life to as narrative armor, maybe? And number two, um, I also... If I remember right, you had something to do with sort of uh, setting a trap for a certain uh, less less than uh, honorable mentalist, um, and I'm really curious to hear about that. Oh, what, what, what's the? That's not my anchor for that story, so I, I'm not plugging it into the the right memory. What's the? You can chat it to me, and then I'll know what what story you're you're looking at. I'm talking about Yuri. Oh, right, right. Okay, gotcha. So uh, the first part, like the power of narrative. One of my really good friends, his name's Charles Faulkner, and he had this brilliant insight. He goes, "Look, stories are human beings." information storage and retrieval device stories are where we put our values and principles as human beings and they're ancient it's our first way that we put things somewhere we put them into story so that when we tell the story we are retrieving those values and principles of what it means to be human being. To me, that that's just fascinating. So you are the stories you tell yourself and other people. And a way that that helped destroy my life was the belief that, no, no, I'm a full-time entertainer. I'm a performer, man. I don't, I'm not a wage slave. I don't have a normal job. I don't do the normal job thing. 
And that story that I believed kept me poor for a very long time. My car repossessed twice. Sometimes I'd have to borrow money to make it to the next show because I was an idiot and (laughs) couldn't give up that story of, no, no, I'm a full-timer. Even though it means that I'll be that I'll be roughing it for a while, you know, at least I'm, I'm a performer and I'm doing this. All those other schmucks aren't amazing like me because they have to have a day job. But what that meant was that they could afford to eat, that their car wasn't getting repossessed, that they could afford really good promotional materials and then outpaced my progress because they could fund their imagination because they were doing the tough thing of, leveraging their time better than I was. So it was my belief that, no, no, I'm a full-timer that kept me in a really bad situation for a very long time. So that is how powerful these stories can be, right? So on the the other part of it uh, with with Uri, uh, that was a battle between uh, Uri Geller and my mentor, James Randi, who had a, a... to anybody who claimed to be genuinely psychic. If you could tell us what you could do, circumstances, and with what perspiracy, well, then we would design a double-blind test to evaluate your in a way that if you actually had that mojo, you would be able to pass the test with flying colors. If, however, you were using trickery, well, then you wouldn't be able to do it because it would be it would be impossible for it to happen due to the the nature of the dynamic of the test so for 4 years i was the guy handling applications for this million dollar challenge and saw all sorts of ways that people really believed that they have the mojo yet wouldn't go through the time of doing a random test on their own because, no, no, man, I know you hear this all the time, but I'm actually the real deal. I, I'm going to get your money, and I'm sorry, but your challenge is over because I'm the, the mojo. And then they would <laughs> fail miserably, right? Because they, they would rather believe the story than face the facts of, nope, that goes against the grain of physics. Good luck, right? So <laughs> that was uh, – that was kind of my master's class in understanding why people believe wacky stuff that has zero alignment with, with reality. And it's, it's outside the bounds of, of what's possible. And, yeah. and that's the reason that I put those two things together is because so often people, people invest in a story and they invest so strongly that they believe that that story is them that on some fundamental level they are the story that they've told themselves and then they so often don't bother to actually put that idea to the test and so when when challenged oftentimes they won't even recognize the challenge is legitimate and they'll just shove it to the side got a little siren out here um but but when they when they are tested and they and they find out that maybe some pieces or maybe the entire narrative that they bought into is is not correct or is only partially correct and they've made that who who they think they are it, it's so 
just crushing to understand that this person that you thought that you were in this story that you thought you were living isn't real. And there's, there's basically like three, three paths I've seen when people run into that situation. Number one, just denial. Nope. That's not true. You're the one who's wrong. I'm the one who's right. And, 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 and I never mind you. And then number two is, Oh, everything I was told was a lie. Well, um, time to check out. And it, you know, and then number three is, Oh boy, I didn't realize how much I had to learn. What else can I learn? And I, and I think yep. a lot of that has to do with the person who's testing him. Like you could learn that you're not prepared for a fight because like someone just slaps aside your hand or you could learn that you're not prepared for a fight because someone beats you to death, you know, and, and those are two very different things. And it's sort of the same with the stories that you buy into. There, there are ways of approaching things that can be a lot more gentle and then actually encourage people to develop a better understanding of things. And, you know, clearly that's something that you're interested in doing and that you've spent a lot of time thinking about how to do. And I wonder how might someone take that idea and some of the ideas that you use and, and bring it into their own life to start to examine their own stories and their own beliefs and to shift them around so that they can sort of align themselves more with on the one hand, the reality. And then on the other hand, the stories that impact their ability to create reality. Mm -hmm. for, for me, a lot of that process happened um, for, for being on stage and doing the show it's all applied psychology and leveraging fundamental human consciousness. That's really what's going on. And for years, I used my skill at doing that to live a really cool life, right? Traveling the world and I entertain the troops overseas, like basically all the really cool stuff you would ever want to, to experience for being a performer. I've done it. Right. And and it was one of those kind of where I go, holy crap, okay, my show, like it's really important to be an entertainer, to at least distract people for an hour from their problems, right? Because the, the crushing weight of existing, you know what, if you can provide an hour's worth of, of respite, that's phenomenal, right? It's like awesome, right? But then at the end of the 70 minutes together, I was sending them right back to their problems. Mm. It's like, enjoy this hour, this hour of reprieve from your, your horrific existence. Look, we're all laughing and having a great time. You're distracted. And now go back out into the world. And you're no more prepared to solve your problems than you were when you first walked in. You might be leaving with an inkling that, okay, maybe life doesn't have to be this way, but you're, you're not better equipped, right? So that's where it really started dawning on me that, okay, these principles and techniques and, and ways of thinking about the world have helped me a lot because I grew up in Western North Carolina. My dad worked in a factory until he retired, uh, ran a, a church kind of on the side of my mom uh, lived in a single wide trailer for most of my childhood, right? Got made fun of for being poor. It's like, yep, that's me. And now I travel the world. That's insane. So 
that's when the the teaching and sharing portion of the equation really came up where I go, I have a moral obligation to share this with the world as much as I can to help as many people as I can to help them wake up to the fact that the way they're thinking about their life is one of the most fundamentally powerful things that's keeping them in the dynamic that's so awful. Right. Hmm. So that was kind of me waking up to the, the responsibility and weight of being a coach or a, a teacher or just somebody sharing different ways to think about life. Right. And one of the most powerful ways that I've found to do that is uh, martial arts, right? Because like you were talking about alignment earlier, right? You're just, you're just out of alignment. And once you're in alignment, you got it, right? So my, my fundamental philosophy for that is, okay, gravity and momentum are the same no matter where you're in the universe. That's what makes it a universal principle. Given that, and that the human pattern is essentially the same. It has local variations, right? You might be a little taller. You might be a little more beefy. However, we've got bilateral symmetry, two arms, two legs. Okay, cool. So given that the human pattern is essentially the same, the Venn diagram overlap of physics and momentum and the human pattern, there's more ideal and less ideal ways of aligning your human body to physics, momentum, and gravity. So martial arts is the kind of physics approach of learning the more ideal ways of aligning your body with momentum. That's all it is. Instead of it being, well, my style is better, well, my family's tradition is better, none of that matters to how effective that strategy is for align your body with momentum. So given that momentum is the same, the human pattern is the same, what works, works regardless of what tradition you're looking at because it's physics. So once you start learning to align your body with momentum, you start recognizing that there are some strategies that you think will work that wind up getting you slapped in the face. And you go, well, that doesn't work as well as I thought it would. So it's an immediate feedback loop on the quality. So if you have a coach that, that cares for you, they will punch you in the face, you that your idea of what is is way out of alignment with how life actually is. Because I don't care what you believe about my fist coming at your face. If you don't do something about it, I'm going to make contact. So I don't care how you feel. I don't care what you wish. I don't care what you're imagining. What are you doing? That imagination is important, informs your actions in base layer reality. So it teaches you fundamental alignment with how the world works. Then you gain control over your body and the process of learning how to align your body with physics. You then gain control over your mind and start figuring out the way the mind works 
because you have that base layer substrate experience of here's cause in the physical plane and holy cow, it's exactly the same kind of dynamic on a mental or an emotional level. Okay, now I have a physical check for these what used to be solely abstract nebulous ideas. You now understand that they're now in base layer reality. They're not just created from some imaginary world. It's just a layer up from physics. So to me, that's why martial arts of body physics is essential starting place to transform your mindset as well. So it's kind of like, it's really cool because I'm, I'm literally a mind reader. Like that's, that's what I do. That's what I get paid to do at these shows. So I approach it from the mental angle and then for coaching, it's like, all right, I'm going to punch you now. What are you going to do about it? I thought we were here to talk about mindset. I'm like, mm-hmm, we are. It's like, now you see how unimportant that mindset stuff is. Let's deal with this to give them that context of testable physical claims of life is like this or it's like that, right? So that's why anybody claiming to talk mindset and motivation, inspiration, and all these wonderful, beautiful buzzwords about imagination and like, yeah, it's great. And they can't even control their body. It's like you haven't even gotten past square one yet. So you don't have a, a gut level, physics level way of evaluating this more abstract claim. So if you can't even manage base layer reality, you want me to buy in to your more abstract strategies when you haven't even managed this one yet. Okay, I'm out. So now you've got real life experience to know whether this abstract strategy idea is worth your investment or not. Because you go, this person's talking crazy talk. If I tried to do what they're telling me to do in this context in a fight, I would get my asking. So the likelihood of that abstract thing being a good thing for me to do because it would be bad in physical way means that I should probably avoid that process. So that's why to me, martial arts is one of the most powerful ways to restructure your life. And when I got it, right, it's like that's, I was in a, a rock bottom place in my life. Like I said, my car was repossessed, got repossessed again, or broke, all that good stuff. Then I found martial arts and I went, no matter how awful my life is, I know I could at least practice this stuff for 10 minutes a day. And it was the practice of making sure I practiced that gave my life structure and brought all these separate elements into proper alignment. And now I was building a life that was in alignment with how reality works. And then I could make meaningful changes instead of just being lost in my, my realm of, of, fancy you know i uh i took karate for eight years from eight to 16 and i was pretty good at it i i placed or won at you know the tournaments in sparring and kata and it was it was very good check to to my 
tendency to to have a strong ego. Uh, a lot of other things, choices in my life later on kind of bitch slapped my ego too. But, you know, I was typically the best in my age group as far as sparring goes. And we would have sparring days. And um, what started happening is, you know, I was starting to get pretty like cocky about it. And my instructor would throw me in with the black belts who were like in their twenties to spar. And I would be like 12 or something. And I'd go in and I, and initially I still had the same mindset. I'm just going to, I'm just going to dominate. I'm the best. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to be a black belt. It's going to be so cool. Punt. Oh man. Uh, no, that was a fluke. Punt. Okay. You know, like, oh, you could, you could just hit me in the ribs or the face or kick me or like stop every single punch or kick that I throw at you because you have a better understanding. Oh, I see now. And through that process, you know, like you said, you begin to understand and I have a, I have a bit of a corollary to something that you talked about there too, which is reconciling yourself with the physical world to help straighten out the mental one. And I had been living in this apartment that was sort of just like a den of thieves and of, and of problems. And uh, it got raided by the police, guns to the head, all kinds of business that, uh, you know, really made an impact on my life. And I had nowhere to go. And I called up my dad and said, dad, can I come home? He said, yeah, come on home. I mean, you got no place else to go. I don't want you on the street. So come on. So I went home and, the, and when I went home, I got the biggest bowl I could find and I made a huge salad and I put like feta cheese and kalamata olives and pepperoncinis and uh, just all the, all the things that I could find that I hadn't, I'd been eating magic mushrooms and rice for three months. That's literally it in hot sauce packets from Del Taco. And I ate that salad and I could literally just feel the life coursing back into my body. And when I, and I had that moment, I went, Oh, you know, this is really what I've been missing. I've really, it's not just hyperbole. It's not just something that people tell you if you don't take care of your health and then you, and then you, and then you come and then you return to it and you feel the difference. It's, it's not one of those things that's theoretical. It's just, wow, I've really been missing out. And the other thing is, you know, I, I was obese in high school and drugged out and depressed and I started lifting weights and even through all my like criminal stuff, that's one thing I kept in place. I'm going to lift these kettlebells. I'm going to do these bodyweight exercises. I'm going to lift these barbells. And, and when I combined that and that's, that's physics, that's, you know, you, you try to lift 600 pounds and you can only lift hundred pounds. You're not lifting 600 pounds. You know, it's just the reality or you, you, you know, you step off the rack Chance, and you have, you just got to believe in yourself, man. You just yeah, got to believe it's possible. Secret. It's a secret. <laughs> and so my point, you know, my point with all of that is I had that foundation in karate, which helped me to understand that number one, there are rules. And number two, there's usually people out there who understand how to use those rules to their advantage better than you do. And then the second thing with the physical mastery that comes through lifting weights and understanding the way that your body works and how you can move your body through space and how you can use that to move other things through space. And then that fundamental reality about health, it really does make a difference in your state. It's like we talked about at the beginning, the fundamental rules of reality, they apply to a human being too. And if you don't have a bedrock to build on, you know, I'll tell you, you know, what doesn't exist a castle in the clouds, but if you build a castle on bedrock, then you can build it tall enough to touch the clouds. And that's the difference between a person who doesn't know what the hell they're talking about and says stuff. And then a person who has experienced life and understood it enough that they can say, here's, Here's a, here's a shortcut, a mental shortcut that will rewire the way that you look at the world so that you can add a level to your castle and get that much closer to touching the clouds. And then you, those, those of us who have 
for whatever reason, whether, you know, I came out of the darkness or you have too, and then you built something of yourself. It's so easy to sniff out the guys who haven't done that. Like you said, you, you go, well, uh, if, if I think about what you're saying right now and I go out into the world and apply it, knowing what I know, I know that that is going to end calamitous, calamitously. So now that I know that you don't know what you're talking about, that's cool. I can just put you over there in the, they don't know what they're talking about box. And then I can seek elsewhere for maybe the tools that I'm seeking to level up my own game. And, you know, you talked about, I'm um, having James Randy as a mentor and I, you know, part of me is that's like, that's so cool because that's a guy who is so fascinating and is one of those unique characters in the world who there's not, there's not two of him. And right. And I wonder maybe your thoughts on the power of a good mentor and, and how seeking one or being lucky to have one come to you, um, how critical that is really in, in increasing your ability to level up quickly without having to make every single mistake along the way. Dude, on like the older I get, the more profound I understand having a mentor is. My first mentor, I mean, of course, my parents, right? They they never made me feel unwanted, right? So I understand that not everybody has had that kind of upbringing. So I always felt belonged somewhere, and that was powerful, phenomenal. The the first other mentor that I've that I had outside kind of the family unit uh, is a guy by the name of Randall, who he's the guy that taught me how to juggle fire when I was 13 years old. So I I, I learned how to juggle from my dad. My dad and all of his brothers could juggle, and I was like, oh, that's so cool! I want to learn how to do this. So I learned how to juggle with tennis balls, and that was kind of the spring. Then the summer, I went to a a uh, two day a week day camp in in my hometown and the dude that was running it was a retired street performer it's like that's how he made his living was in south florida performing on the sidewalk and then passing the hat so that he he supported a family right his whole family just circus people basically right so <laughs> juggling eating fire just the the whole nine yards so he retired to the mountains of north carolina and he goes, well, I'm already here, so let's run a summer camp just to teach kids how to be cool, basically, right? So <laughs> then he, he, he taught me how to juggle fire. And I was like, that's so awesome, right? It's just really cool. Now, at that point in my life, I was intensely shy, and I, I would not talk to anybody I didn't know because I, I was just embarrassed and awkward. It's just like the normal teenager weirdness combined with really, really intense introvert. Uh, I, I would just rather not talk to anybody than have to talk to somebody, right? So I learned how to juggle, and then I would juggle, and these people I didn't know would stop to watch. And then when I stopped juggling, they'd be like, hey, that was really good. I would get applause and positive reinforcement for that behavior of juggling, right? So, okay, that makes me want to juggle more. But it still wasn't me putting myself out there because it was a thing I was doing instead of a person I was being, if that makes sense, right? Sure. So I wasn't, 
I wasn't saying anything. I was just juggling demonstrable skill that a 13 year old kid you wouldn't expect to be able to do juggling tennis balls. Now we're juggling pins. Now we're juggling fire. Now we're juggling knives. Holy crap. That's amazing. Good job, kid. Like, okay, cool. So then my mentor, Ray and oh, Dick, man, here's my whole show script. Here's my script. So like, all right, cool. So then I still wasn't putting myself out there, even though I was talking with the audience. Because script that I knew worked because I saw it work for Randall time and time and time and time again. Mm. So I started realizing, okay, I say Randall's words. I do Randall's actions. I get Randall's responses and Randall's tips. So I was using his script and getting his results. And I didn't have to dream up any of it. He goes, here you go. Here's how it works. And I still didn't have to put myself out there. But I could prove to myself that this stuff works because I would do it and I would get his results. It was that simple, right? So then it's taken me decades to realize how fundamentally powerful that is, right? So then I start working with Randy when I'm in college. So I go off to college, get a degree in painting, and every summer I would go down to Fort Lauderdale. I would do paperwork and hang out with Randy, and then in the evening I'd go hang out on the beach and and talk to pretty ladies and have experience. So then I saw... Randy's way of doing things, find his patterns, put his patterns into play, I start getting his results. So having a mentor is really one of the fastest ways to completely transform your life. If you aren't doing what you want to be doing, and there's somebody you can see who's doing it, go make yourself incredibly valuable to that person. Because that's the exact pattern that I've used in my life to do what I want to do. Because there was a full-time entertainer who was working the college market. I saw him perform at my college when I was a student there. We connected. Six years later, I'm in a position to be valuable to him as a tour manager. So I, I say, all right, I know you can't pay me a lot. However in dollars, but you'll still provide value because I'm going to ask you every aspect of your business of making a living, performing a show at colleges. Hmm. So I traveled with him for a year and a half, asked him every question I could imagine, saw how he did things, and then started doing exactly what he would do for myself. And that's how I became a traveling entertainer performing in the college market. Right. I didn't have to spend 10 years learning it. I apprenticed myself for a year and a half, kept my eyes open and saw how it works, then start putting those patterns of behavior into play and I start getting those results. So you don't have to figure this stuff out by yourself. You're not alone. There are people who are already world class at doing what it is that you want to do. The trick 
is figuring out how to get connected to that person. How do you make yourself valuable to that person? So it's that principle that work across the mentor-mentee dynamic, no matter what vertical you're talking about, it's the specific implementation that's the trick. And that goes for so for martial arts, right? It's like, okay, the principles don't change, but in this particular dynamic with this particular person and this particular vector of momentum, the ideal thing to do will be this spontaneous expression of these principles. So this technique will spontaneously arise if you obey the principles, but I can't tell you the technique will always work no matter what. So for anybody out there listening, be like, okay, so how do I get a mentor? Well, the principles are the same. Be valuable to the mentor. The specific implementation, well, that's genius to figure out. So find yourself a mentor, get connected, and you will fundamentally transform your life. You know. Um, number one, there's a reason that apprenticeships and internships and the master student dynamic has been in place since essentially the beginning of time. And it's because the transmission of knowledge, it's tough to, it's tough to really make that happen any other way. And I'll say this too. Number one, actually, you might be familiar with Larry Chang, who was on this podcast before and is something of a character. One of the things he talks about, and I bring this up often, is PR, PR, PI, which is pattern recognition, pattern repetition, and pattern iteration. And he suggests you outsource the pattern recognition because it's a high energy, high demand skill, and most people are terrible at pattern recognition. So like you said, if you look out there and you see somebody who's really good at it, they've already recognized the pattern. You don't have to have a lifetime of experience. You can just go learn the pattern from them. And then it's repetition like you talked about. I, I have the script. I'm going to go do that. And then after a while, you see, okay, I've been getting this person's results, but maybe I want to tweak the results to my own situation. And so you iterate that pattern in a slightly different way so that it fits more within your ideal. And, and, and with that sort of understanding, there's, there's basically two ways that you can lure in a mentor. You can pay them with money or you can pay them in service. And for most people, especially young people, right. you don't have any money. So what are you going to do? You got to lead with giving. Like my friend, Jack Murphy says, if you, if you say I can help you, here's the ways I can help you. And I'm at your disposal. If you need this, I'll do this. If you need coffee, I'll get you coffee. If you need uh, someone to do paperwork that you hate, I'll do that. I'll do anything that you ask of me. And in return, I just want you to teach me what you know, so that later on I can make the thing of myself that you are, that I admire. And you know, then eventually you, you establish yourself enough that you have resources other than your time. And then you can pay somebody and say, well, you just, I'll give you a thousand dollars. You teach me this skill, please. And then that really, you know, capitalizes on your capital to increase your ability to do a lot of things. So look, we're kind of closing in on the time and we've covered a lot of ground, man. This has been cool. And there's a lot in here. If people really listen to this episode and and really listen to this episode and understand the principles that have been sort of underlying the whole thing right from the get. They're going to have a lot to work with and to think about. And I wonder, 
you know, like I, we've had this conversation and I'm grateful for you to spend your time here and, and, and share your wisdom with me. But there's a lot of people who listen to this podcast and they come here because they know that I'm trying to offer them something that they can use in their lives. And if you had one of these people, whoever it is that you imagine in your head when I say there's an audience out there and they're sitting in front of you and they say, you know, Jonathan, I really like a lot of what you had to say. I'm into the idea that you can change your beliefs to change your experience in reality and that there are rules to changing those beliefs that will allow you to have the greatest impact on reality and to move through it in a way that doesn't attach chains or, uh, you know, hold you back or limit you from the things that you have the potential to do. But I don't know how to start. I don't know what to do or really how to get going right now. And if that person was sitting in front of you and was curious about these things, what are one or two things that you might offer them that you feel like could give them the most, uh, you know, like the, the biggest boost to starting down this path of sort of mastering their belief systems in order to master reality? Oh, man. Really, I am being 100% literal right now. It's not a metaphor. It's not a figure of speech. This is actual answering the question, which is the moment you feel the need to do something, focus on your breath instead. Because that is a conscious decision that you can make that is available to you every waking minute of your life. And what that is, is an interruption of the trigger and response cause and effect cycle that you believe doesn't have a middle where you decide what it is that you're going to do. So oftentimes people believe that you made me, I have to do this thing. You don't. And to prove to yourself that you don't, you can choose instead to focus on your breath and just be aware of your breathing. And what that does is it reinforces the understanding that you can always choose to control your behavior. And that one thing can transform your life because you realize that nobody else has control over your life other than you. And it's provable to yourself the instant you decide to focus on your breathing instead. So it's not so much that it oxygenates your blood and it's the outcome that you're looking for. It's just the process of maintaining control and understanding the power of choice and reminding yourself that you can always choose your path. And it's always provable to yourself because changing your breath is always an option. I love that. And you know, it may or may not surprise you to learn that that's not the first time that that question has been answered that way. Um, <laughs> that's cool. And coming, coming from a person who is very addictive and obsessive in nature, you know, I've had to, I've had to learn that skill. And another skill is I, and I've taught this to a lot of people, but I used to wear like a hair elastic or a rubber band around my wrist. And if I had something pop into my head that I wanted to move from my head, snap, and that little pain response, it causes you to focus on the pain for a second. And then you go, oh, okay, you know, I didn't like, 
the, the rule behind that was I may not be able to control what thoughts enter my head, but I can control how long they stay there and I can control what I do about them. And, and that tool, I mean, I find it very fascinating that that's the one thing and we talked about all these great things and cool tools and everything, but the one tool is just, just take a breath, man. Just interrupt the, the cause and effect chain and realize that, you know, you're, your effects are caused by your causes. There's a difference with like a kinetic experience. If a car T-bones you, a car T-bones you. And you might die or you might get broken and you can't control that, but you can control how you think about it, what you do moving forward from that point. And so I really like that you honed in on that as as like the the one thing you would say, hey, this is where you start. Just remember to breathe. And there's a reason that breath is important in religion, in martial arts, in exercise, in health, in, you know, in psychological situations. It's because it's common to everybody. It's under your control and it creates effects that are instantly noticeable. So I love that, man. And look, that, that's why it always makes me laugh when people go, well, no, this is too simple. That won't work for me for this reason. I'm an underwater basket weaver from Dakota. Oh, sure. This has worked for millions of people for thousands of years that every major tradition all centers on this same thing. But for you, you're just so special and such unique specimen that it won't work for you. Okay. Enjoy believing that story for as long as it takes for you to, to experience, to really wise up to the fact that no, that's not right. Yeah. And hey, not for nothing, but I've been that guy in a lot of different situations and I'm, I'm pretty sure I haven't found my last one. So, it, you know, at the same time, it's yeah. funny. It's also, well, I understand, man. So, so look, man. Uh, exactly. It's a process. <laughs> I really appreciate you coming on and I, you know, I mean that. And I say that every time and I always mean it, but I know that your time is valuable and, and, and I appreciate you coming here to share some of your time and some of your wisdom and lessons that you've learned along the way because um, number one, it's it's a selfish thing. I get to I get to incorporate some of the stuff I've learned from you and and think about things in a different way. And then I also get to offer it up to the people as an act of service, and they get to do whatever it is that they want with it. And I really appreciate you taking the time. And that being said, the reason that I had you here is because I think you're interesting, and I and I value what you have to say. And I want other people to know where they can find you so that if they value what you say, they can come find you. So why don't you tell people where they can find you, you know, social media or websites or whatever. And if you'd like to say hello to anybody, this would be a great time to do both of those things. Thank you. Uh, first off, I do appreciate you enabling me to connect with your audience too. So that's uh, deeply meaningful to me as well. And uh, speaking to you out there in podcast land, if you want to say hi, I would love to hear from you. So the ways connected with me and my work, um, I'm most active on Twitter at the underscore Pritchard. That's the actual me. I used to have a bunch of different profiles for my art and painting was one and my Kung Fu was another. And then, so I recently was just like, you know what? I talk about life integration. So let's just integrate all these separate parts into me again. So it's the underscore Pritchard. Uh, if you want to know about my mindset work, buy the book, uh, Think Like a Mind Reader. That's available on Amazon. If you want to know about my martial arts work, the book Wing Chun Life Physics 
that's the the kind of physical way to my work. Uh, if you want a mastermind group, well, it makes most sense to uh, group up with a uh, with people that have mastered the mind. So go to mindreaderuniversity.com. So that's where I hang out all the time, write articles, that kind of thing. It's behind a pay gate because, hey, value for value. It's very small pay gate, but if you aren't even willing to pony up four bucks a month, well then I'm not going to share this value. <laughs> so, so that's the, the kind of membership group that I have. And aside from that, just say hi on Twitter and I'm looking forward to getting to meet you. Excellent. Well, um, you know, I, I hope somebody hears this who needed to and is able to connect with you and, and get the things out of it that they needed. Um, and you know, once again, thanks for coming on and if you're good, I'm good, man. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Okay, well, this has been the Logo Centrifugal Podcast. I've been Chance Lunsford. He's been Jonathan Pritchard, and we are both out. We here at the Logo Centrifugal Podcast work hard to bring you the highest quality audio, the best editing, and the most professionalism of any podcast on the market. Either that or we do the exact opposite. Either way, consider supporting the podcast. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can support the podcast by supporting the podcast. There's a link somewhere, and I encourage you to click the link to support the podcast professionally. 